Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Jenny Ikuda, who is the author of Contesting Conformity, Democracy and the Paradox of Political Belonging. This book was published um, in April of 2020 by Oxford University Press. And Jenny takes us through a really vibrant discussion of the question of conformity and nonconformity um, and the roles that those those sort of understandings play as we think about ourselves as individuals in a democracy. But I'm going to let Jenny talk about that. I'd like to welcome Jenny Akuda to the New Books podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, so I... Uh, I'm currently, well, as of this fall, I'm a political theorist at the University of Missouri at Columbia. Um, And more, you know, at the broadest level, I would say that I'm interested in the relationship and the role of moral psychology in politics. And so, you know, this particular book is about the relationship between, you know, one dimension of moral psychology, which is, you know, conformity or nonconformity, and its relationship to democracy. Um, how I came to the project was that, you know, I think it came, the project kind of came out of a number of observations, right, which all kind of converged and, and got me to think about this question about nonconformity within democratic societies. Um, so the book at the broadest level employs the thought of Tocqueville, Mill, and Nietzsche, right, three 19th century figures, um, in order to reflect upon the meaning and the value of nonconformity within a democratic society. Um, so the book came out of, like I said, a couple of observations about nonconformity in American public rhetoric. Um, the first thing I noticed was that everyone seems to love nonconformity, right? Nonconformity is seemingly the only game in town. You don't see anyone in American public life saying, well, conformity is actually really great and nonconformity is bad. Um, So there's this kind of ubiquitous valorization of nonconformity that I was observing. Um, The second observation that you know, that I made was that despite this valorization of nonconformity um, in our public rhetoric, there is this growing body of research in social psychology, um, which essentially says that most people are actually conformists most of the time, right? And they actually punish people for refusing to conform, right? So actually, the really interesting finding I saw here in particular was with teachers, right? So teachers, um, as social psychologists have found, right, will all they will all report um, things like, you know, they'll all report that they love non-conforming students, right? They'll say that they really love working with creative students and students who think outside of the box. Um, But as it turns out, like in practice, teachers don't actually enjoy those students. They actually really enjoy students who are, you know, orderly and follow all the rules and are well-disciplined and are, you know, nice and well-mannered. So what this seemed to suggest to me that, you know, actually, you know, as Americans, you know, we seem to love the idea of non-conformity, but we don't actually love non-conformity. And then the third thing I noticed was that, and this was, I think, the real place where I saw sort of the book take on, you know, the book really started to, to become 
a, a set of research questions for me, right? It was with this third observation. Um, it wasn't surprising to me, right? Given how you know, ubiquitously valorized, you know, nonconformity is in our public life that, you know, everyone and every, you know, everyone was using and marshalling nonconformity for their own purposes, right? Whether that was like in tech or business or education. Um, But I would say probably starting around 2014, 2015, 2016, I started to notice some troubling things, right? Namely that the rhetoric of nonconformity was being marshaled for morally objectionable ends, right? Specifically for dominating or excluding certain categories of persons, right? The most obvious here, uh, the most obvious example here is is really the alt-right, you know, right? To the extent that there was some kind of dominant public rhetoric in the United States um, that, emphasized, say, like racial and gender equality, you had these figures of the alt-right, you know, figures like Milo Yiannopoulos saying things like, well, if you believe in racial and gender equality, then you're a conformist. And so to be a nonconformist means being, you know, racist and misogynistic, for instance. Um, the other example that that I think some people remember uh, is, is Kanye West, right, who said essentially, um, he was calling himself a free thinker, but also saying, you know, and slavery was a choice. Um, so it seemed to me to be very obvious that pretty much everyone was using, you know, nonconformity for every kind of purpose. But I think the thing that really kind of fascinated and troubled me, right, was that even when people criticized, right, say, for example, the alt-right or Donald Trump or Kanye, they would always presume the desirability of nonconformity while characterizing them as hypocritical or for misappropriating the ideal, right? So when the alt-right said things like, oh, we're countercultural and being countercultural is to be, you know, racist and misogynistic, um, the immediate critique was, oh, the alt-right isn't truly countercultural because counterculture means, you know, inventing actual like new ways of living that, you know, involve actual material objects or something like that. And the alt-right doesn't really produce that kind of cultural artifact. So therefore they're not countercultural, right? Um, or when Kanye said, you know, I'm a free thinker and slavery was a choice, you know, the immediate reaction to that was, oh, no, Kanye, like the tradition of free thinking is to advocate for progressive movements for social change. So therefore, you're not really a free thinker, right? So in other words, critics were arguing that, you know, all these figures here were misunderstanding the ideal of nonconformity, or that they weren't applying the ideal correctly. And it struck me that the reason why we're, you know, and and it struck me that it's precisely because I think we're so unreflectively committed to nonconformity as an ideal, that even when we're presented with instances of nonconformity, um, where the expression of nonconformity is for domination, say, or for morally objectionable purposes, um, our immediate reaction is to simply characterize those purposes as illegitimate applications of an obviously legitimate ideal. Um, and so it, it struck me then that, you know, by fixating on whether someone is, you know, properly a nonconformist, we were missing this opportunity, a really important opportunity, I think, um, to critically examine, you know, the meaning and value of nonconformity within a democracy, right? In other words, I think we actually conform to the value of nonconformity and therefore foreclose our ability to ask questions like, you know, what is the meaning of nonconformity? You know, what is, why is it valuable, you know, particularly in a democracy? And, you know, is it always valuable? Um, so, you know, that's kind of the, this, the cluster of observations out of which, you know, the book came about. And, you know, and I look at, you know, the thought of three figures, um, Tocqueville, Mill, and Nietzsche, to essentially argue that, you know, while nonconformity is valuable for democracy, you know, nonconformity is not 
necessarily democratic. Um, and it struck me that, you know, these three figures, they all give us slightly different notions of conformity and nonconformity. And depending on how they understand um, those concepts, right, the way in which they um, advocate for resistance to that kind of conformity are also different and how they understand, you know, that value of nonconformity within a democracy. Um, they're also all slightly different, but, um, but it struck me that, you know, these three figures allowed me to think about nonconformity in a more sort of nuanced, in a more textured way. Um, and to, you know, give some complexity, I think, to the often kind of binary conversation we're having, or not even a conversation, right? The often binary insistence, right? That nonconformity is always good and, and conformity is always bad. My question for you is this idea of what we mean and, and thinking about this in terms of a democracy and citizens and individuals by this concept of conformity and nonconformity. And you gave us an example of teachers. Um, and I certainly understand, you know, the sort of desire for the creative student who thinks outside the box. And most of us um, who write academic books are academics. And so we sort of, you know, look for that as well as also wanting our students to hand in their papers on time. Um, and so when we talk about, but that's only a small segment of the concept of conformity and non-conformity. Um, and you do a really beautiful job at the beginning of the front of the book, talking about where we see so much of this sort of valorization of it. Can you talk a little bit about what these terms mean for us individually in our day-to-day -day lives, but also conceptually within sort of thinking about a democracy? Yeah. So I think that um, at least in our public rhetoric, the way that nonconformity is oftentimes understood is under, it's understood in a very sort of schematic way. And by that, I mean that typically it, it doesn't, we don't presume anything about the substance of what is being conformed to or resisted, right? Typically we think about nonconformity as there is a dominant norm or a dominant set of um, assumptions about what is acceptable. And then there is someone who says, who rejects that essentially, and is an outsider to that, right? And so the person who stands outside of that gets to claim this mantle of being a nonconformist. Um, but because I think our notion of nonconformity, at least as we currently practice it or, or employ it in our, in our contemporary discourse, is that it's entirely schematic. It has no substantive content to it, right? And as a result, I think that's the actual, that that I think explains why anyone and ever, everyone is taking it up for every possible purpose, right? Because um, you can just sort of, you know, someone can say, well, the dominant norm is just, you know, fills, you know, it's just this thing I don't like, and I reject that. And because I reject it, I stand outside of that as a nonconformist. Um, so I think that's, um, I think that's currently how we practice it. And that's kind of how you can see sort of everyone using it for, you know, any kind of purpose in order to um, champion, you know, what their, 
their own particular favored values are, right? And I think there's something deeply attractive about this way of thinking about nonconformity, right? Because everyone who wants it gets to be like the hero of their own story. Um, and so I think that's kind of, you know, one reason why, you know, it's being, the rhetoric is being exploited for, you know, by everyone for everything. And, you know, part of what the book is trying to do, right, it doesn't quite, the book in many ways, you know, I'm not giving like one definition of nonconformity. Um, I'm looking at, you know, a couple of different figures, because they all give us slightly different ideas about what nonconformity is, right? So for, for example, you know, for someone like Tocqueville, right, nonconformity is, you know, it's this freedom to dissent, um, which simply means, right, the ability to reject um, the opinion of the ruling power with some measure of social support. Um, but that's, you know, quite, that's a pretty political notion in my mind, as opposed to, say, someone like Mill or Nietzsche, who have um, much sort of deeper, much more fundamental, much more sort of existential understandings of nonconformity um, in terms of individuality and creativity, where for them, you know, it's also nonconformity isn't just, um, it's not just about, you know, being able to say what you think, you know, with, with some social support. It's also about like cultivating, you know, a deep sense of ethical self, a kind of authentic self um, that, you know, if you are truly authentic, it, you know, the things that you believe in the things that the way you live your life is going to probably be at odds with certain forms of, you know, dominant, with, with certain kinds of dominant norms and mores. So, um, so that's kind of, I mean, I guess those are two different ways of answering the question. You know, the first is, I think we have a pretty schematic way of understanding nonconformity. And I think that's precisely why everyone loves it so much. But I think it's that kind of unconditional love of it that prevents us from really being able to think critically about nonconformity and democracy. And then I think, you know, if we look sort of historically at, you know, different sort of canonical figures in political theory, we see that nonconformity can kind of mean a number of different things. They, they're somewhat related, but they're not really interchangeable. And none of them are really reducible to this kind of bare bones, like dominant and then outsider view of nonconformity. I mean, Socrates himself seemed to be on both sides of this. That's right. Um, <laughs> if I'm That's right. Thinking correctly about why ancient political theory, um, but it, you also talk about this in context, obviously, of democracy, because this is really a consideration of the, as you say, this kind of commitment that we all seem to have, mostly unreflectively, in the United States, in particular, with regard to nonconformity, and we can do it because it's a democracy, and yet it's also sort of in context of majoritarian and anti-majoritarianism. And so what is the role of democracy in our thinking about conformity and nonconformity? Yeah, I think actually in our current political, in our current sort of public rhetoric, democracy really doesn't figure very strongly other than to say everyone can do it, right? And that sense is a kind of egalitarian. I mean, you could say it's it's democratic in the sense that it's a kind of notion that it's an egalitarian, it's an egalitarian idea that everyone is capable of being a nonconformist. Um, but in my, in the book, um, but in the book, I take a slightly, I emphasize a slightly different dimension of democracy here, right? It's less about whether each individual is able to, you know, be a nonconformist in some way, although there's certainly an aspect of that. Um, to me, when I'm thinking about the relationship between nonconformity and a democracy, I'm thinking about democracy as being uh, defined centrally by a kind of relational ideal, right? And specifically by um, a kind of relational equality. And what I mean by that is really, it's, it's a normative commitment, right? It's a normative commitment to a kind of collective life where 
individuals relate to one another as relational or moral equals for the sake of sharing and power, right? So because it's a normative, a substantive ideal, um, and I think, I, and you know, and I'm pretty upfront in the book uh, that, you know, my, my commitment really is to democracy as a normative ideal. And that um, because of that, right, um, because of that, you know, there are, for me, democratic constraints on nonconformity, right? That because um, democracy as a relational ideal, it's at odds with, say, domination, for instance, right? It's at odds with hierarchical societies, right? Societies in which um, some people have to um, defer, right, to the authority um, of of superiors, right, who get to determine the terms of collective existence. And so, you know, for me, you know, democracy is, it's a commitment to a normative ideal that certainly it's also institutional, but centrally I'm interested in in democracy in that kind of normative way. Um, and as a result, you know, it's probably not very surprising then that because I have a normative commitment to democracy in this way, um, that for me, right, the commitment to nonconformity is, um, is not absolute, right? It's not unconditional. I think that nonconformity is and can be really valuable for democracy um, in that it can certainly enhance democracy in certain ways. Um, but I don't think that that nonconformity is necessarily democratic, right? And more specifically, my view on this is that, you know, nonconformity is valuable for democracy when it um, encourages dissent and supports individuality, um, but not when it, um, but it ends up being a problem for democracy when it, um, when it, when nonconformity ends up violating commitments to relational equality, right? So democracy in that sense needs nonconformity, but not in this unconditional way. And, and you, you integrate this sort of consideration with regard to turning to these thinkers, Tocqueville and Mill and Nietzsche. Um, and I'm, I'm first curious to know why these three in particular, um, and you do make reference to Emerson um, early in the book as mm-hmm. well, um, as well as, as some contemporary thinkers on sort of democracy but you, you, you know, the, the bulk of the book is about, in, you know, your interlocution with these three thinkers on their, their concepts of conformity and nonconformity um, with regard to democracy. Can you talk a little bit about why these three led you through this conversation? Yeah. Uh, so I went to these three figures because I think they help us think through the relationship between nonconformity and democracy in really rich and theoretically interesting ways, right? They're all 19th century figures who um, were all worried, actually, very deeply about conformity, um, specifically the conformity of individuals under modern mass democratic conditions. Um, and I found that they each identify, you know, a very specific feature of modern democracy um, that they think encourages conformity, right? And all these three conditions, I think, are actually conditions that are familiar to us. For instance, uh, for Tocqueville, right, this, the condition is the power of public opinion, right? For Mill, it's the tyranny of the majority, right? And for Nietzsche, it's the commitment to moral equality. And so, you know, and they all they all share this kind of general commitment that they thought that, you know, individuals ought to resist conformity. So in that sense, they kind of resonate, I think, with our, our contemporary kind of, you know, um, 
worry about, you know, conformity in some ways. But, you know, what exactly this means looks a little bit different for each figure. And so, you know, I turn to these three because, you know, I think they each show us something different about nonconformity and conformity, and they give us sort of different kinds of answers to slightly different ways of thinking about the problem of conformity, um, and then also different ways of thinking about how to think about nonconformity within a democratic context, right? So, um, you know, they're all also thinking about, you know, whether and how nonconformity ought to be constrained within a democracy, right? And this is partly, you know, why they have different views about whether or not you can actually be a nonconformist in a democracy. So Tocqueville and Mill, for instance, they they encourage individuals to resist conformity in ways that are compatible with democracy. Um, while Nietzsche is pretty clear, right? He thinks that resistance to conformity is radical, right? And it's so radical in ways that you can't actually be a Democrat at the same time. Um, and so I thought, you know, I went to these three because, you know, I thought they each identified, you know, certain distinctive features of modern mass democratic life that, you know, that we see in our own contemporary societies. Um, but I also thought that they were valuable because they texture, they layer, they give us a, a much more, uh, a much more nuanced, right? A much more rich, a richer vocabulary through which to think about this relationship between nonconformity and democracy, um, so that's why, you know, these three figures, um, there's, there's a lot, you know, there are other figures I could have gone to as well, but um, Emerson and Thoreau are, are usually the two that people are quick to ask about. They, they always say, why not Emerson and Thoreau? Um, and, you know, my, my, I mean, my response to that is really that, you know, Emerson, and, a lot of people have already written about Emerson and Thoreau on this question of nonconformity. And so, um, so that's why not them, I guess. And, um, and so that that's, reasonable. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I, I wanted to take you through each of them a little bit to talk about, sure. um, what you saw as their, their, and you've sort of outlined this a little bit, um, their, their, biggest concern with regard mm-hmm. to these questions of conformity and nonconformity within democracy and also where they saw potentially some solution. Um, so since Tocqueville is first in the book, let's go with Alexis de Tocqueville. Sure. Um, so the Tocqueville chapter is really about sort of intellectual conformity, right? And it's what Tocqueville conceptualizes in terms of what he calls sometimes intellectual servitude um, and the absence of what he of what I call, say, the freedom to dissent. Um, so for him, right, um, conformity is intellectual servitude. Nonconformity is this freedom to dissent, or something, or sometimes he calls it intellectual freedom. Um, so here, I was mostly interested in telling a story that somewhat complicates, you know, some of the Tocqueville scholarship on conformity that I saw. And I mean, not to get too in the weeds on this, but, you know, almost universally within the Tocqueville scholarship, um, there is a deep fascination, right, with this, um, with notions of intellectual conformity within uh, the text democracy in America. And what was fascinating to me here was that um, it seemed to me that most scholars reading these sections on intellectual conformity were pretty doom and gloom about it, right? They were, they would look at the passages, the really famous passages, right, about like the dissenter who, you know, tries to express an opinion that's at odds with public opinion. Um, but then, you know, all of a sudden realizes that he's totally alone. He can't withstand, he can't withstand, you know, the power of the crowd. And he, you know, just quietly slinks back and, and just ceases to say anything. And oftentimes, right, Tocqueville scholars would look at those kinds of passages and then say, well, look, this is just proof, right? This is just proof that Tocqueville thinks that 
there is no such thing as intellectual freedom in a democracy. Um, it's all intellectual conformity all the way down. This is why we're doomed. This is why Democrats are intellectually mediocre, <laughs> right? It was, and what struck me is that, you know, it was interesting to me that they were all kind of reading Tocqueville in the exact same way, more or less. Um, interesting conformity there. <laughs> right, right. That's what it is. And what also struck me is that, is that, you know, this sort of reading of Tocqueville seemed really not consonant at all with Tocqueville's broader project in democracy in America, right? So like at the beginning of the text, Tocqueville is very clear. He says, you know, equality is inevitable, but the direction that equality takes is not, right? And so, you know, he makes very clear at the start of the text that, you know, the real task for democracies, right, for both in the United States, but also really for his readers in France, is to figure out, right, how do you encourage um, individuals who are living in these inevitably um, egalitarian conditions, right, inequality of conditions, to direct that equality so that they are um, free, they have freedom in equality rather than um, rather than being uh, having equality in servitude, right? So it's about the direction where right? equality is inevitable, but whether we take it towards freedom versus servility is not. And so, you know, given that kind of contingency that Tocqueville sees, right, that, you know, that we can be, you know, have equality and freedom or equality and servitude, um, given that contingency, it, it struck me as being strange that, you know, people were sort of reading this Tocqueville passage is saying, well, if there's intellectual equality, then obviously we're all just doomed to be conformists, um, because that just did not seem to square with the broader aims of Tocqueville's project. And so, you know, I mean, in the end, I kind of use very similar methods to a lot of, you know, traditional Tocqueville scholars. I, I just read things very, very closely. And in the end, I just kind of came to different conclusions, right? I read the same passages that they do, um, but I read them in slightly different ways so that, you know, for instance, you know, I... So to in my reading, right, um, it's not, uh, you know, they're going to say, well, it's about, you know, how individuals are unable to stand against the power of the crowd. But in my reading, you know, what I really saw in Tocqueville was that, you know, what Tocqueville, I think, is saying is that it's not that... Um, dissent in a democracy is impossible because of public opinion. Rather, it's that isolated dissent is impossible, right? So um, in that reading, I'm giving, you know, one of the things I highlight, right, is that you have um, in that picture that Tocqueville is describing, right, you don't just have the individual dissenter and this like um, majority that constitutes public opinion, you also have this sort of third party figure, right? The, the people I call silent unbelievers, people who um, actually agree privately, right, with the dissenter, um, but they're scared to actually voice their opinions. They're scared to publicly announce what they already believe to be privately true. And so they'll actually, you know, even though they will believe the same things that the dissenter believes, they will act as though they do not believe it, right? So they will participate in the ostracism of the dissenter. They will look like they are part of majority opinion, even when they're not. And, and this is, I think, the really crucial part for Tocqueville, right? He actually, for him, you know, it's not, it's actually, it's once everyone sort of withdraws their support, pretends to not actually support the dissenter. That's really kind of when the dissenter is alone and really cannot um, keep resisting public opinion there. And so, you know, it struck me there that, you know, if the problem is not dissent in a democracy, but rather isolation, right, isolated dissent, then there are actually resources within democratic life to actually overcome that kind of isolation, right? So for Tocqueville, right, it's going to be some form of civil associations, right, something that he calls actually intellectual and moral associations um, in terms of 
um, overcoming that kind of isolation. It assures the dissenter that um, they are not alone. And um, in, I think, addition to that, we can also think about sort of individual forms of private social support um, for individuals. And I think, you know, what Tocqueville really shows us here that is valuable is that, um, I think Tocqueville actually is pretty unorthodox, actually, in the way that he thinks about nonconformity. Um, for us, I think we oftentimes have this assumption that nonconformity is premised on the opposition between the individual and society. Um, but I think Tocqueville's point is that actually that's that's not actually really possible, right? Nonconformity has to be socially supported, right? Um, so ironically, like in order to resist public opinion, you actually need some form of social support of your own, right? There's no such thing, actually, as a kind of heroic, isolated dissenter, um, because even that person, you know, I think Tocqueville is always very attuned to the idea that um, that we are deeply social beings, right? And that without social support, um, we actually, there, there's no you can't actually resist as an individual, right? But just because you can't resist as an individual doesn't mean that you can't resist at all. It just means that resistance has to take a more social form, um, that actually nonconformity for Tocqueville is predicated on social support, predicated on social recognition. Um, and that's where I think, you know, to Tocqueville's really helpful and also kind of has a theory that's kind of runs counterintuitive to a lot of our assumptions about um, nonconformity in, in, in society. So that in in order to essentially be somebody who is dissenting or who is non-conforming, you kind of need um, a chorus to support you. That's right. Yeah, I think that's actually um, his point is that, you know, standing like if non-conformity requires you to be a hero. Right. Tocqueville, I think, rejects that idea. Right. He's just going to say, actually, that's going to be totally impossible. And in some ways, I understand why a lot of the Tocqueville scholarship goes in this kind of doom and gloom direction, right? Because if you think that the problem, if you think that what nonconformity demands is a kind of heroic individualism, then absolutely, like you're just not going to get any dissent in a democracy. But I think Tocqueville's point here is that, you know, it doesn't, I mean, I think nonconformity for Tocqueville certainly requires individual initiative. It certainly requires some kind of courage, but that's not the same thing as, say, superhuman bravery, right? That is completely immune to what anybody thinks about you. Um, I think Tocqueville's point is that we, we all care about what other people think about us, and that's neither a good nor a bad thing. Um, but the point is that, you know, within democratic life, you know, non nonconformists also need a kind of, uh, they need to be affirmed too, right? And it doesn't mean that, you know, everyone needs to affirm them because then they cease to be a nonconformist. But it means that someone somewhere, right, affirms them, someone somewhere believes in them, um, whether it's, you know, you know, so I think that's kind of where Tocqueville is really helpful for kind of widening our political imaginations um, when it comes to what the possibilities for nonconformity are for us. And, and so the next author that you use in the theory um, is this question that J.S. Mill takes up with regard to individuality right. um, and nonconformity. Um, and how is that distinct from the sort of Tocquevillian approach? Yeah, so I think that, you know, for Tocqueville, um, nonconformity is centrally about how we relate to other people, right? Specifically that we tend to suppress 
um, the problem that Tocqueville sees, right, is that we tend to suppress difference in others. We don't relate to other people who don't think as we do very well. In fact, the problem is that we don't relate to them at all, right? We tend to socially ostracize them and isolate them. Um, but the problem of conformity is essentially about our social relations with one another. And, you know, for Mill, that's certainly true for Mill in many ways. He does think that the problem, you know, that social ostracism, ostracism is one way in which we enact conformity. Um, but conformity for Mill is a much wider and deeper problem, right? It's not just about how we regulate the behavior of other people when, you know, especially when it comes to like their preferences, but it's also about um, how we um, tyrannize how, I mean, what Mill is interesting, he's, he sort of seems to think that, you know, we, we, we seek to control other people and force them to conform, but we also seek to oftentimes suppress the kind of difference within ourselves, right? There's a kind of external tyranny that we enact upon other people, but there's also a kind of internal tyranny we enact upon ourselves. Um, and as a result, for Mill, it's not just a problem of how we relate to other people, but it's also a problem of how we relate to ourselves. And so I think for Mill, you know, what's different about Mill here is that it's not just a political question, but it's also an ethical question, right? When it comes to conformity and nonconformity, because you can imagine, say, right, for Mill, it's entirely possible for someone to um, to recognize and affirm and at least to tolerate, right, difference in other people and allow other people to dissent and to, you know, have unconventional ways of living. Um, but for Mill, on my reading, right, that's not really enough to be a nonconformist or to, to cultivate individuality, right? Because it's one thing to say, well, you know, difference is good for someone else, but, you know, I'm just going to continue being an unreflective conformist. And I think for Mill, you know, that's not, that's not going to be enough, right? To, to really cultivate the kind of nonconformity that he thinks is valuable. Um, it's, about it's about allowing and tolerating difference in other people, but it's also about cultivating individuality or difference within yourself. Um, and that way, I think, you know, Mill has a more he has a more expansive view of what nonconformity demands, and therefore um, it, ha it has a more demanding view, right, of, of what it means to be uh, properly nonconforming. And and of course, with regard to his understanding of nonconforming being broader, bigger, mm -hmm. um, it also, as you note, is not just about your relation to other people, but it's also your your internal structure. Right. Um, and how you operate, which is always how I sort of had this understanding of Mill and his thinking about sort of politics. It's 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 both external and internal. Right. Um, and so what is Mill's solution, again, in a distinction from Tocqueville? Yeah. So I think that, you know, for, for Mill, because he views, you know, social tyranny as being this kind of having this dual nature, right? Both being inner and both being internal and external. Um, the solutions that Mill gives are both internal and external, right? Unsurprisingly. So, you know, I, so at least in this chapter, what I'm trying to do, right, is to kind of, essentially what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to center conformity as the problem. And then essentially when thinking about solutions to conformity in Mill, um, essentially resituating things like, you know, really commonly understood concepts like the harm principle and individuality in relation to that, right? So on my reading, right, the 
external tyranny, right, which is essentially this kind of the impulse that the social majority has to kind of control and regulate the behaviors of other people um, in matters where they should not be regulating them, right? Um, So Mill is very clear, you know, like, actually, social regulation is neither good nor bad. It's just the problem is what we tend to regulate. And, you know, the problem with external tyranny is that, you know, the social majority has this, this desire to control and to compulsively control, you know, the individual preferences of other people, even when it has no bearing on um, other people's interests. And so, you know, if that's the case, then the solution that Mill is offering there is going to be the harm principle, right? And the harm principle is oftentimes kind of, I think, viewed in this kind of, um, this kind of like banal liberal platitude of like, you know, that, that just doesn't seem to, that has actually produced an entire cottage industry of, of mill scholarship. But, you know, one way to, I think to, to understand the harm principle is that the harm principle is the audience for the harm principle is actually the social majority. And what Mill is essentially saying is that, look, social majority, you now have this standard, you have something called the harm principle, by which to then start to make judgments, right, about whether or not um, any particular instance is a scenario in which you ought to interfere with the freedom of others. And the and more specifically, I think the, you know, the freedom of, of persons he's thinking about here that are that most the, the freedom of persons that he's most concerned with here and in this domain, right, are these the people who are already nonconformists, right? The people who are already the centers. And essentially the harm principle is a kind of check, right? On the social majority's impulse to be externally tyrannical. Um, But even once they do that, right? I think even once they are able to sort of restrain themselves, to control themselves from, say, interfering in, in, you know, all these nonconforming lives of others, they also, um, Mill doesn't think that's enough, right? There's, uh, because they also suffer from a kind of internal tyranny, right? Namely, um, the, there are a few, th- the few different characteristics of this. The ones that I spell out are things like hypocrisy, the lack of self-direction, um, and uh, I think the lack of autonomy, right? Um, is that, you know, they, their inner lives are, you know, are desiccated, right? They have no ability really to think for themselves or to think about, you know, what would be, um, what would be productive or conducive for them in their lives. And, and there, I think Mill would say, you know, for, for the conformists, right, they need to counter their own internal tyranny. And the way they do that, right, is by cultivating individuality. Um, but that's really hard, right, because these are conformists who don't already value individuality, because if they did, then they wouldn't be non, they, they wouldn't be conformists at all, right? And so, you know, how you, you know, their Mill doesn't quite give you the full story of like, how you're supposed to get a conformist to fundamentally be other than they are. Um, But, you know, there's, there are a couple of different theories as to how you might get there, right? One possibility is that maybe you first, you know, tolerate difference in other people somewhat instrumentally, because, you know, you say things like, oh, well, you know, when we try, we have more ways of living, we are likely to get, you know, better ideas about how to structure our society. Um, But, you know, maybe over time, you start to move from just valuing something instrumentally for someone else to coming to see it as instrumentally as intrinsically valuable, and then also maybe at some point intrinsically valuable for you. Now, Mill doesn't actually give you that whole, he doesn't spell all of that out for us. So, um, but I think the point is that, you know, this, I think all of this sort of underscores just how deep and radical the problem 
Mill sees is, and therefore how deep and radical the solution also necessarily has to be, right? This is not just about being okay with someone who's not like you. It's also about fundamentally transforming your own character, right? It's about being, you know, it's about not being a conformist when your conformity is actually quite pleasant. Um, It's actually quite enjoyable. And, you know, I think it's also telling for Mill as opposed to, say, Tocqueville, right? Um, For Mill, right, the conformity is much deeper because, you know, because of the power of custom, right? Which, as Mill points out, is um, has the, uh, the, the nature of custom is to appear as nature, right? So oftentimes, you know, there's a kind of mystical quality to custom even, right? Where even the conformists are quite lost to themselves, right? They don't even oftentimes are, they're not even aware oftentimes, I think, of their own conformity. And I think that just kind of goes to show how incredibly deep-rooted Mill sees this problem. Whereas like for someone like Tocqueville, I suspect that, you know, you always get the sense with Tocqueville, especially with these like silent unbelievers who are like pretending to not, um, they, they pretend to not believe what the dissenter believes, but they act as though, you know, they, they don't believe it. Um, the sense you get is that they're very like cognizant beings who are able to sort of make up their own minds. Um, you know, the problem is not the lack of private judgment, right? You know, Tocqueville says, you know, in America, the problem is that there aren't, he says, there are definitely atheists in America, right? The problem is not that people are like these blind sheep, right? There are totally people who are able to make up their own minds and exercise their own private judgment. The problem is that people aren't, um, they don't feel like it's safe for them to publicly announce what they privately have already believed to be true. Whereas with Mill, you get the sense in which people are really kind of sheep all the way down, (laughs) or at least a lot, most of them are most of the time. (laughs) So, uh, so I think that that sort of goes to sort of some of the differences in how they think about the problem, right? For Mill, it's a, it's a radical, deep existential problem that demands this kind of radical, deep existential solution. And sheep all the way down is often the way I think about what <laughs> Nietzsche's talking about. Too. Yes. <laughs> so yes. That was a perfect opening <laughs> to bring in good old Freddie Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. And um, so he, yeah. he, his emphasis and what you talk about, and this is what often has been my understanding of Nietzsche mm-hmm. in his thinking is that the conformity has squelched creativity. Right. And so how does that fit into Nietzsche as a Democrat? Question mm-hmm. mark. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess the short answer is that he's not a Democrat. I didn't think and, so. <laughs> yeah, not a Democrat. Although I do think um, there are ways to read Nietzsche that make him kind of a radical individualist, certainly, um, and ways to read Nietzsche that... Um, say that everyone is capable of creativity. Um, so you can read them in a kind of descriptively egalitarian way. And I think, you know, there's, there's a large body of scholarship in um, amongst a large body of Nietzsche scholarship that really does try to show this, right? And I think that there is something that is really, there, there is a plausible and compelling way to read Nietzsche that says, yes, it's radically individualist. Yes, creativity is something that can be cultivated by everyone. And in that sense, it's descriptively egalitarian. Um, but I think he's not, but at the same time, that is compatible with his rejection of democracy. Um, if you understand democracy to be a kind of collective or an association of individuals who relate to one another as moral equals, right? And I think the real, you know, 
Um, the reason why really is that, you know, even if you have all of these individuals, right, which who, who are exercising their kind of creativity um, or nonconformity, right, in the broader sense of the word, which for Nietzsche really means, you know, creating values that are specific to yourself as an individual, right? Um, so it really is, I mean, for Nietzsche, you just can't, there is no such thing as being um, truly a Nietzschean creative free spirit and being a member of any kind of group, right? And I think for that reason, right, democracy is off the table, right? Democracy is off the table more specifically, I think, for Nietzsche, because um, as if you really are a Nietzschean creative, you always have to reserve the right to make an exception for yourself in some way, right? To somehow say, well, you know, like this is to always sort of say, well, you know, these values, to look at sort of democratic values or democratic norms or any sort of group norms and to say, well, as an individual, I reserve the right to make an exception for myself to not be bound by those rules. And I think that's the part about democracy that Nietzsche really just really hates. I think that's the part that really grates at him is that um, is that there are some values as a Democrat that are substantively already off the table, right? Any value, for instance, that... Um, that, you know, any value that's fundamentally anti-democratic, right? So for instance, if you think that, you know, for instance, say domination, right? If domination is an anti-democratic value, um, the fact that it's a priori right off the table, Nietzsche is going to find a problem with that. And again, you know, uh, it's not necessarily because I think that the Nietzschean creative free spirit is necessarily aggressive or necessarily, you know, like a bad person. In no, in no way do you have to presuppose or, or presume any of that. It really is just the primacy, I think, that Nietzsche ascribes to the individual will that is a creative will that that accepts and recognizes no other authority other than its own. And so and, you know, ultimately, you know, democracy is not that right. Democracy is a collective will, right, of which there are individual wills that are a part of that. But those individual wills are bound together in relations of what Nietzsche would call, you know, moral equality, what I call relational equality. Um, and therefore, right there, when there are conflicts, right, between, you know, particular individual wills, and then, you know, the, the democratic values, the norms that we have assented to, right, by virtue of being in this democratic community, um, something is going to have to give, right? And for Nietzsche, and, you know, Nietzsche and I just disagree on what has to give there, right? Nietzsche is going to say the thing that has to give is democracy. And therefore, you, you know, your allegiance is really only ever to yourself as an individual. Um, and my view is that no, that's not that's not the case, right? In the end, like my allegiance is to democracy and not to necessarily individual wills here. Um, and so, you know, here I think, you know, for me, Nietzsche actually plays a very kind of a different role, I think, in the story than, say, Tocqueville or Mill, right? Because for, for Nietzsche, Nietzsche kind of shows me, I think he shows us, right, where that kind of outer limit, that kind of out, that where that constraint is on nonconformity if you want to have a commitment to democracy in some way. Um, I think that, you know, Tocqueville and Mill, I think they, I mean, they're, they're both, they want nonconformity, but they want it in a democratic context, right? And there's actually another kind of B-side to the story that you could tell in this book, which, you know, I try to tell in some ways, I'm not sure, you know, people can tell me how successful I am in here, but um, where, you know, Tocqueville and Mill are very clear that, you know, nonconformity is good, but they're also, you know, they are always thinking about where the constraints need to be 
in order for nonconformity to be compatible with democracy. And I think, you know, they both have different ways of treating the problem, um, but they both kind of fall short in different ways. And I think really Nietzsche is the one who sees most clearly, most perceptively, um, first of all, that there needs to be a constraint on nonconformity if you're going to be a Democrat. And secondly, he shows us sort of where exactly that line is. And, you know, where... Nietzsche and I disagree are ultimately right in our conclusions. But I think that Nietzsche's analysis of the problem is is incredibly, I mean, he, I think he's right. I think he's right in all the important ways when it comes to analyzing that relationship between nonconformity and democracy. Um, and for Nietzsche, he's going to go, he's going to run with creativity and I'm not. But uh, that I don't, I don't think, you know, diffuses or diminishes uh, the kind of power and the value that he brings to thinking about this question. And and that was what I thought was really fascinating in your discussion of Nietzsche is actually how he he defines it um, and and how he defines. And this is also where I've always, you know, found Nietzsche himself fascinating is what is he trying to teach us about this will to creativity um, and what do we lose in in pursuing that if one does pursue that? So what are the potential constraints um, in, in Nietzsche's teaching to us, as well as Mill and Tocqueville, as we think about nonconformity in terms of a democracy? Um, yeah, so, you know, for, so for, you know, for Nietzsche, I'll start with Nietzsche since we're on Nietzsche. Um, the constraint really is, um, the constraint is moral equality here, right? Democracy is defined by moral equality. Therefore, um, any expression of creativity that violates that uh, that violates that commitment to moral equality um, has to be excluded from democratic life. And I think for Nietzsche, right, that's unacceptable to him. So, in other words, you know, moral equality, namely the notion that um, that there is there is a kind of inherent equal value to individuals, um, that no one is, you know, born superior to anyone else. No one is born inferior to anyone else. Um, no one is in, you know, and therefore by virtue of our equal status, right. We are all therefore bound by equal terms of collective existence. And I think for Nietzsche, right. Creativity, um, any sort of expression of creativity that is going to be at odds with that is going to be a problem for democracy. And that's kind of where that limit for democracy is. Um, for Tocqueville, the limit is religion, right? He's very clear. It's, it's fascinating for Tocqueville. He, you know, there are times when he seems to say, you know, oh, it's really sad that there isn't more intellectual freedom in America. Um, and, you know, like, Americans are becoming more intellectually servile in all of these ways. But as it turns out, you know, you get to this part about religion and Tocqueville says, oh, actually, as it turns out, we need more intellectual freedom, but not when it comes to religion. Like religion is like the one untouchable subject, right, when it comes to intellectual freedom. Um, that actually where he says it's very good that Americans are intellectually servile when it comes to religion. Um, it's a good thing that atheists and agnostics are not able to publicly proclaim their atheism and their agnosticism. Um, and for you know, Tocqueville, it's entirely understandable as to why that's the case, right? For him, the reason is because um, because of the, the political and the specifically democratic value that um, religion has for, for American life, right? Um, for him, you know, religion is indispensable to democracy. Uh, and therefore, right, you can have complete intellectual freedom, which includes the intellectual freedom when it comes to religion, or he says, or you can have political freedom, but you can't have both, right? And so even there, you know, Tocqueville is actually recognizing there is going to be some kind of a constraint on 
intellectual sort of nonconformity if you also want to hold on to your democracy. And there, I think he's right. I think there, he's right to think that, you know, you can't have maximal nonconformity and democratic freedom at the same time. I mean, I think he's wrong in thinking that, you know, religion is that sort of outer constraint. Um, but insofar as religion has a specifically political function for Tocqueville, it's, it's a coherent, you know, it's a coherent view for him. Um, for Mill, the, the constraint is the harm principle, right? It's, um, it's any kind of action that interferes, or, or rather it harm any, any sort of anything that harms the interests of other people, right, is essentially going to be that outer constraint. Um, and I think for Mill, you know, he's, he's complicated and interesting because, um, you know, people oftentimes think that it's only harmful actions that, um, that are justifiably regulated by public opinion in Mill's account. And that's actually not the case, right? You get to chapters three and chapter four of On Liberty, and he's very clear. And he says, you know, there's a whole range of what he calls morally vicious dispositions, right? That he says, you know, even if these things never actually rise to the level of a harmful action, um, they they are harmful to others, right? And he actually lists a few of these, like, you know, he actually says, you know, the, the desire to dominate over other people, the, des- um, the kind of envy that always prioritizes itself over others, um, that, you know, and he has a few others, but, you know, it, it really is fascinating because there, you know, you start to, he has a pretty capacious notion of harm there, right? It's not even just the things we do to harm others. It's like the morally vicious dispositions that may arise to the level of an action. Um, and there, I think there's some interesting and, and puzzling kind of questions that arise out of that too, right? Because the question then becomes, well, what's a, what's a morally vicious disposition that might, that might result in an action, but also might not? Uh, my first thought is actually, well, I'm pretty sure that speech might count as one of these things. But then, you know, once you have that line of thought, that starts to put pressure on, right, chapter two of On Liberty, whereas the freedom of li- uh, the liberty of discussion um, is something that, you know, people really love about Mill. So I think, you know, for Mill, it's a complicated story, but it's some notion of harm, but, um, but how that harm actually gets um, defined or conceptualized is, is something that's murkier, but I think also more complicated than a lot of sort of at free speech absolutists want to say that it is. So this is uh, an amazingly beautifully written book, and I learned a lot from, from it, but I, I get the sense that it was quite an undertaking for you. Um, and, um, and it came out super well. Um, but what are you working on now? Um, yeah, thanks for asking. I, so I've, you know, like I said before, I've, you know, I think I'm broadly interested, or rather I am broadly interested in, um, the role of moral psychology in politics. And, you know, here the kind of element of moral psychology that I was interested in was conformity, um, and nonconformity. And, you know, for the next, project that I'm currently on, um, I'm turning my attention to another dimension of moral psychology, which is willful ignorance. Um, And specifically, I'm interested in how um, the relationship between willful ignorance and racial injustice in the United States. Um, Specifically, I'm interested in how um, willful ignorance is a practice that's employed by, you know, powerful and privileged people in order to sustain their power and privilege. Um, And specifically, I'm thinking about that within the context of race in America. Um, so that's kind of the short version. Um, I'm thinking a lot with um, figures like Jefferson, like Thomas Jefferson and James Baldwin um, right now and trying to, to think through willful ignorance as, you know, I guess what I'll say really quickly is that, you know, in contrast, you know, what I don't mean when I say willful ignorance is that um, I'm contrasting it really to kind of conventional ignorance, right? We imagine that 
um, ignorance in the conventional sense is simply the kind of accidental omission of knowledge that if we just that all, that can be remedied right simply by supplying the relevant knowledge or information. Um, but willful ignorance, I think, is different, right? Willful ignorance is the kind of um, epistemic practice or condition where uh, there is a certain amount of knowledge that is then, you know, denied or disavowed or quite literally ignored, right? And I'm interested in that particular phenomenon of moral psychology, um, particularly when it comes to um, white Americans who um, who who know that, right? Certain they have certain kinds of racial privileges um, that depend on the subordination of Black Americans and yet um, consistently find ways, right, whether it's through physical spaces, the construction of physical spaces or language practices, um, to find ways to justify, right, their continued power and privilege. Um, and I'm interested in, in sort of what the, that kind of moral psychology and the relationship of that to um, the built world and um, certain rhetorical practices that we engage in and to think about, you know, how also... Um, once people who become aware of their willful ignorance, are there ways for them to overcome that as well? So it's a different, the second project is basically a different kind of dimension of moral psychology. It sounds fascinating. And I hope you'll come on the New Books Network and talk to me about it when it comes out. I would love to. Thanks, Lily. It's my pleasure to talk to you today. Um, I was talking to Jeannie Akuda about Contesting Conformity, Democracy, and the Paradox of Political Belonging. This was published um, in 2020 by Oxford University Press. I assume it is available at Oxford University Press's website. Um, any brick-and-mortar store that you want to give a shout-out to? Um, the seminary co-op bookstores in Chicago, at the University of Chicago, um, would be the one I would I would recommend to everyone. It is All the right. best academic book, uh, bookstore in the universe. <laughs> Support that. Um, <laughs> sounds good. Thanks for joining me today, Jenny. Thanks so much, Lily. It was great.